0: Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Tim Collins, president of Walsh University, as our guest. Just student success, you know, so that comes in the shape of recruitment and retention. But at the end of the day, you know, I think we're all lifelong learners. So just being able to really promote education and to be able to really create a forum Um, You know, for institutions like Walsh, you know, because, again, it's really been a focus of Plexus, but a focus of mine as well throughout my career, you know, working with a number of of the smaller, you know, faith based institutions um, that have a lot to offer. But, you know, a lot of people may not know about them. All right. Awesome. And JP.
1: Well, I've been in I've, I've started and exited multiple companies in my career. And, uh, you know, the last one, uh, once I left Microsoft, I, I started another company, which was a, a mobile application company. We create over 2,500 apps. We sold that company. And then, you know, I, I actually went the other way. I went into research and in academia after after being experiential in the corporate world for many years. And I was teaching at Cal. Um. And I'm still doing research right now. This—that's my passion. So I, I just said, you know, I'm going to put that to some good use. And in 2011, launched Plexus, and um, uh, you know, just been involved in in all of that. So it's 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 a it's both the academic side that got me here, and also the corporate side. So uh, I thoroughly enjoy talking to academics and 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 folks in higher education, especially presidents, from a leadership perspective. Okay. Awesome.
2: Awesome. Okay. Family situation for you guys, kids, brothers, sisters, parents, what do we got?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. So I've got, I've got four little ones running around the house. I've got a 13 year old boy. Um, and then I have three little girls. So, uh, 11, 10 and and five. So they, they keep me busy. (laughs) Okay. Awesome. And
2: are, are they from Tennessee? Are you from Tennessee originally?
0: I'm actually from California. So, um, yeah, I met my wife in San Francisco. Um, ironically enough, grew up in Walnut Creek, which is where our headquarters is located. So, um, lived in California, um, and been in Tennessee for about mm, a little over a year and a half. Yeah.
1: Okay. All right, JP. Um, I have three, uh, I have a nine-year-old, uh, 15, and a 22 year old who is in a grad school of pharmacy right now. She's at UCSF. And awesome. So they're well spread out, and uh, yeah, family. Everyone in Santa Cruz. I'm originally. I was born in Iran, and I moved here when I was 12 and a half. So, uh, but all my family is out here. We have a very big family in Bay Area. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that. Now, now you got. Before we go into the podcast, we can't. What's your situation? <laughs> right. Not fair.
2: Uh, well, let's see. Um, my story is not that interesting. So, um, I had a. I'm an Air Force Academy graduate. I had a whole career as a fighter pilot. I retired, and then I went to Johns Hopkins University, and I headed up a, a whole body of research for about nine years in the Applied Physics Laboratory. Um, and then I became, um, I was an executive in the laboratory and I, uh, started up our very first government relations function as a chief government relations officer. And I did that for, for five years, I guess, retired from Hopkins and came here to this job. So a direct line from the Academy to this role at a Catholic university. So, um, speaks a lot about purpose and, um, And all that. So I've got three kids myself. We have 14 grandkids. Um, The the oldest grandchild is a granddaughter who's only just turned nine. So they're all they're all little. We had three covid babies, whatever that means to us. Um, We did lose a grandchild a couple of years ago. So we've got 13 that are with us of the 14. But that's our family situation. So I'm sitting here between 10 of them uh western ohio pittsburgh and then down in houston that's where my three kids are at.
1: How how blessed are you? That's that's amen.
2: Just... Yeah we're we yeah. are and um in fact I had um there was an engineer I also I was in the Whiting School of Engineering at Hopkins and I chaired two programs. And um one of my colleagues, I was kind of a mentor for her, she was Iranian. Mm-hmm. She she had come to this country and gone to Oakwood Oakland? Oakland University in Detroit. She was a double E. She's a Ph.D. double E. Wow. Uh, and her parents, you know, come back and forth and all of that. So, uh, that the whole story of her immigration and the family and, you know, which America thinks, you know, well, you know, we have nothing to do with Iran. And every time they say Iran on the TV, I say, we actually have a lot to do with Iran. It's the leadership in Iran that we have the issue with. It's not the people in Iran. They're And, you know, she was just amazing. So I learned a lot about the culture of Iran through her eyes. When I was at the academy, my roommate had lived in Tehran. Their father was like in the embassy or something. There used to be a lot of Americans
0: there in the
1: 70s and 60s. huge. In fact, all 70s, Iran had the most number of student visas uh, every year in the 70s. And and then everything kind of went. Right. I, 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 we we gotta grab coffee at some point. We could probably yeah, try. we
2: should. Well, the Crown Prince was in my class at the Air Force Academy.
1: Oh wow! Um,
2: and then of course, <laughs> after everything happened, whenever that was in the seventies, you know, he went he went home and he never came back. But he was in <laughs> the Crown Prince was in my class. So
1: That's okay,
2: there we go. Sorry about that, Bradley. We had
0: to sort of just you know a little excursion. Wow! No, no, no. Hey. I love it. That's what makes these podcasts great, you know, and they're raw too, which is really nice. So let me ask you, so who who is your team based on where you are and just your background? I mean, whether it be a football team, basketball team, uh, another sport. Yeah. Who is my team? Well,
2: you know, I spent over 20 years in the Washington DC area. And what I learned in Washington DC is no one is from Washington. Yeah. So that means everyone has two teams, right? So if you're, if you're from San Francisco, you know, you've got a team out on the West coast and you live there. You're probably Baltimore Ravens or Washington. I don't know the way they go by commanders now or something like that. The Washington team. So, you know, I'm sort of, I grew up, my, my oldest son discovered baseball right as the Braves were on their trajectory up Hmm. and with Turner owning, you know, um, TV channels and putting Braves games on it was easy for everyone to become a Braves fan. So, you know, on the baseball side, I'm Braves, although around here I'm learning to be a guardians guy. And I don't say much about the Ravens because of the Browns. There's like this historical connection, you know, when they left Cleveland and then won the Super Bowl. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so I try not to talk too much about that. Well, that's great. Well, let's, Hey, let's, let's continue let's on go. your journey path. And what, who, who are the mentors that have, have really shaped your career, personally and professionally?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I take a little different tact on this, um, Bradley, than some people do. I mean, I, for some, it might work, you know, you find a mentor, I have to latch up with someone who looks like me or sounds like me or has got similar interests in me. I sort of have been fortunate that I have tried to take every situation I've been in and assess who in my circle could be mentoring me indirectly. And there, you can learn from people that are focused in and resonate with you. But I also have learned that I've learned sometimes the people that have aggravated me the most are the ones I've learned the most from. So, I mean, my little long list of mentors, I'm being mentored right now. Look, I'm a president here at Catholic University. My cabinet, I don't think they really realize they're actually mentoring me all the time. And um, I'm trying to, you know, learn and grow, you know, here the students in our environment are not just the tuition bearing students. It's I think all this is what you said. We're all lifelong learners. And that's because we're all trying to fill out whatever our life's purpose is. And it might take us our whole lives until we look back and go, oh, that was my purpose. And so for me, the mentoring has been about what can I learn in the moment now from people that I'm interacting with? And so I go through a little process every night, it started a long time ago, where when I put my hand on my stick shift to back the car out of my parking spot, I make a snap assessment of revalidating myself. So I ask myself this one question, did I today revalidate that I should have the role that I'm performing today? And then I'm kind of mulling over that question all the way home. And part of that is, you know, what went well? What went bad? What did I learn from? Who should I have learned from? What did I see today that maybe I didn't know yesterday? And as I hit the driveway, I take all that thinking and I put it in the mailbox. And mm-hmm. then I drive up the driveway and I pull in the garage and then I'm done thinking about it. Now i got to shift gears. Let's focus on my family. It's focusing on whatever you do tonight. But in the morning, when I get back in the car, I pull it back out of the mailbox. And say, Okay, that's where I left off. What do I need to do today that's different to make me better so that I can, in fact, you know, meet that bar of validating that, you know, I am where I'm supposed to be. So here I'm in a role and in a privileged leadership role. The board has given me this privilege, but I think the community has given me this privilege too, because, you know, there's an upright, you know, revolt. I'd probably, you know, be out of work. So, you know, what do I need to do to better serve them? What can I learn from them? And I take that back. So, you know, for me, mentoring is about learning from everybody all the time, not just trying to call up one person. But in that very special space, I do have a personal learning network. These are four individuals that are not in higher ed, that are not in the local area. They're very accomplished in their own fields. And I go back to them with ideas while I'm trying to learn my job, learn my role, bounce things off. So I, I guess maybe... Some could say, "Well, that's mentoring." I don't view it like mentoring as
0: much as I do. They're there to try to help me, you know, be better in my role. Sure, and you had mentioned they're not in in education. Is that on purpose? It is. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so I I think one of the roles that a president has in higher education is making sure we're not a self licking ice cream cone that we're kind of looking around. We're trying to bring in other ideas. We're supposed to be the incubator of ideas. We're supposed to be the place that teaches people how to think, not what to think. And so I should be that conduit of other ideas coming in and out and what I'm doing, what's working in corporate America, what's working in the nonprofit world, what's working in policy and government, how do I bring that back? And so through my personal learning network, I'm able to access that information, but apply it to my problems. So for instance, I came in in August of 2019 and, you know, one of the things, you know, I went on a listening tour trying to find the soul of the university. So I spent the whole first semester doing that. I went away for a couple of days on a, like a silent retreat to try to sort this information out. And then the plan was now we're going to start the strategic process, right? I mean, all presidents talk about this, CEOs talk about that. What is our strategic plan? So I go back to my personal learning network in January and said, OK, here's what I learned. Here's what I think is going on. Here's where I think the university is. I'm ready to start this process. And one of the people in my network, they say, Tim, what are the core values of Walsh University? Mm-hmm. And I kind of hem and I haw. And it's, well, you know, I mean, I, and he stops me. He says, well, no, wait a minute. You don't have like a list? You can't just, you know, name them? And I said, well, no, actually, you know, I don't think I've ever come across anything in our materials. He said, well, how are you going to make a strategic plan and make strategic choices if you don't even know what your values are? Aren't those choices going to be values-laden? I'm like, you know, good point. So I came back and I went to the board in February. Nope, not ready to do that yet. I think first we have to uncover what our strategic, what our values are, our core values. So we went through six months of trying to uncover them, discover them you know not from the top down but you know what is it that reflects us you know for us integrity and community and so on and so forth and once we got that then i said okay now we're ready for a strategic process so the my personal learning network i guess in some sense is reflective of what a mentor you know might might do but i think of it i just think of it differently than this textbook have a mentor
0: thing yeah uh, that makes sense and so you know when you look at walsh university um, you know, you talked about strategic plan and values, but the, the market is pretty saturated. You know, how how do you how do you compete? How do you compete and and win?
2: Yeah, I love that question. And, you know, we have there's fifty five hundred colleges and universities in the country, about two hundred twenty three are Catholic. So we're still kind of hallucinating. You know, the Catholic Church actually invented them. Ten eighty eight University of Bologna, Bologna opened the doors. So we invented higher education, still open today, 934 years later, why is it still open? You have to ask yourself. And it comes down to it's a value proposition. And one of the things that makes higher education so good in America, places like Caltech, places like Johns Hopkins, places like Walsh University, is that we compete and I think if we had the same sense of competition and trying to always be better, be smarter, be quicker, be faster in the public sector and in the private sector in K through 12, we'd have a completely different K through 12 system. Our K through 12 system is like that. We have states that argue that you can't have a charter school because there is competition. And I think that is actually what's been contributing to our challenges in the K through 12 space right now in the country is that we insist on not having competition. So for me it comes down to the value proposition and in our I think right now in America we're going through a very polarized time. You know we've got a crisis of leadership going on, we have a crisis of conviction going on right now. And in some sense this is helping my value proposition, you know, get a little light shined on it. You know we we actually think there is objective truth. We actually think there are values that matter. We actually think that ethics does matter. We think that there are objective standards to which we can measure ourselves against. We don't think it's just a total free for all. It's my truth, your truth, his truth. Physics doesn't work that way. I don't think it works that way when it comes to some of these leadership issues, which is what ca- colleges and universities do. Look, if you think about it, of all America, business, private, profit, not profit, they are led by individuals that have had a college or university experience to the 99th percent. Almost all, not all of them, but almost all of them. So we, in fact, are the leadership laboratory of tomorrow, not just for America, but for the world, because so much of the world comes here for higher education. So inside of that, you know, I actually think that, you know, these values matter. So it's that values proposition that makes the difference, that helps make us distinctive. So we've seen a 13 percent, 10 percent, I think the number finally shook out. ten percent bump in the size of our freshman class. Our transfers are up, our international students are up. So what's going on in the culture is actually contributing to us actually being able to highlight our values proposition, and that does make us more competitive because we are doing something different. We are not teaching people what to think. we're teaching them how to think, and that resonates with a lot of people.
0: So um, higher education in general is you know you you is known as a shared governance. You know, type of a system. I would imagine that a, as a, a fighter pilot, you probably had to make decisions on your own very quickly. How quickly can Walsh University move and how do you ensure that you're on the cutting edge and you're making decisions quickly and efficiently and, and as they have to be in order to be?
2: Yeah, thank you for that. And of course, everyone watches the movies, so they think military people, it's just my way or your way or the highway. Um, and if we have to make quick decisions, we can, and we do, and we will, and we are, and I can run through the litany of things that we've you know, made adjustments to as a result of COVID and, and other things, just trying to respond to the market. Um, but I'll also say this, that, you know, there's a misunderstanding that in many ways, you know, we're a multi-million dollar multinational business is what we're running here. And it's called a university. And just like in business, Shared governance is often misunderstood that in the academic world, shared governance, they think that that means that, you know, I get a veto power. You can't do anything unless I agree with you. And, you know, my perspective on that is what shared governance means is the same thing it means to you and your business at Plexus, sir, you at Microsoft, you know, you and your other experiences. It means we have alignment on priorities. And that's shared governance. And so as long as, so my role is to make sure we're all aligned on our priorities. And if we are aligned on our priorities, then as you cascade down and let people do the things that they need to do, they will. But you have to move at, you know, the speed of life. I I have a little thing, speed is life. We got to move faster. We can't wait nine months to figure out what to do. We have to be data driven. We have to have a culture just like business. We have to look at analytics. I mean, data analytics, we just now today in cabinet decided Data analytics across the entire curriculum is now what we're going to do. And we're going to implement it, you know, by the first of the year. So we're going to have some module now in every course we offer all the time, because it doesn't matter what your profession is. If you walk out this door and you don't know how to do data analytics, you're going to fail because every employer is going to expect you to know how to do that. Because that's what they need to do now. doesn't matter if you're a nurse or, you know, whatever. Um, We all need to do it. So the way I do that is set expectations. There's really only two levers that I can pull as a president of university. And I think in some sense it's true, you know, as a CEO, anywhere set expectations, control the pace of change. And so it's through those two dials, you know, that I'm messing with all the time. And then underneath that, allowing people to, you know, fail fast, you know, use their own creativity. Let's all have the North star, a lot of ways to get there. Um, And so my my job is actually not to insist everyone's on the path that I want them on. My job is to make sure we're all pointed in the right direction, our priorities are aligned, and then let them go, even though if I think that, you know what, that's probably not going to work. But I have a responsibility to develop them as professionals and leaders and the management the faculty and the staff. So you're not going to learn anything if I don't let you fail. And I might be wrong. And so, you know, I want to make sure that we have that, and that'll affect sometimes how quickly we can get things done. But we are not moving at, you know, the speed of a glacier here at Walsh University. We're moving pretty fast. We have a very aggressive uh, strategic decision agenda. We're marching through it. We have been marching through it. We set a process up involves a lot of people, and we're we're, we look more like corporate America, sir, than we do higher education here at Walsh.
0: And so, how how are you engaging? the local community and building relationships with businesses today?
2: Yeah. So that starts with, I'm going to say something that's heretical. So all your listeners that are thinking this is a higher ed pod, get ready to cover your ears. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like that, you know, alert kind of thing. I actually don't think the customer is the student. The customer is the employer. That's who our customer is. And so, you know, the recent poll from Gallup shows 78% of employers say they have an unmet need right now in their staffing. All right, so we have a choice. Either we're going to meet that need or they're going to. So I wonder 10 years from now, as I see where corporations are going with training, with education, with this merging, I wonder if in 10 years we're going to see little difference between a corporation and a university because they're gonna start to take on so much of this. So in this interim, this period of time where I think higher ed has to decide, are you really creating something for the employers or not? You have to be plugged into the business community. So I plug in a lot of ways. All of my executives, all the cabinet, we are serving on boards. We're out there in the nonprofit world. We're connected um, with the community in that way. We also have a program here that we started a year and a half ago. The National Science Foundation has declared Walsh University the first in the nation to actually adopt a concept that was developed out of a study they did three years ago on Blue Tech. They called it um, Blue Collar Workforce. And it's this idea of how do you upskill America's workforce, the manufacturing force that we have out there? So what's happened is, is that our workforce has gone through training, some sort of training, Maybe it was in BoTech, maybe it was in shop, maybe it was someplace. They're out there, they're doing their work, but the employers are constantly spinning and moving faster, 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 and they're getting really sophisticated pieces of equipment that show up on the shop floor. And they, that piece of equipment can do A to B to C to D, which is that primary thing, but it can do a lot more than that. But the worker isn't really equipped on how to look at that piece of equipment and how to wring out of it everything that it can do. So we have married with the state of Ohio in their, they have a program where they will provide employers with money to upskill. And we provide a program, a three-day program. And we look at like internet of things. We look at AI, we look at data analytics and we teach them. What does this mean with the third day being we're on the floor with them, looking at their equipment, looking at their processes saying, okay, this is what this means to you in your business, So the employer is paying for an education where it spins right back around right there for what they're doing today. So and then, of course, that opens up the conversation. Are there other kinds of education that your workforce might need? And I think that we have a responsibility in higher education to be serving the business community, because the truth of the matter is government does not make our communities go it's the business community that's out there making it go. Government can provide roads and fire and safety. But if you look everywhere else, it's business that's in the background making everything happen. And so we want to be married with them, because I think that they're actually my customer. And I think that if we really want to be a contributor, you know, here at Walsh, we are the largest employer in our town, then we ought to be right there with the businesses making the town grow and prosper and improve quality of life. Quality of life is more than just having a nice desk chair. So we have to be part of that. So I think that we, to direct answer your question of how we partner with the business, we do it in everything we do day in and day out as a partner in what we're doing, not as just an appendage to something that's going on
0: locally. So how how are you engaging alumni today to tell the Walsh University story? So the thing about Walsh
2: is we're young. We're only uh, 60 years old. We have 17,000 alumni that are out there. Most of them are in the latter part of our life because those early classes were like, you know, 30 people, 40 people. took us a long time to sort of build from a college then to a university. We became a university in the 1990s, but it was taking us a long way to get to where we are with about 2,500 students. So our alumni base is young. Uh, Most of it's around us. You know, 85% are here in the state of Ohio. So to get to those long, the long answer is I've taken career services, what we had as career services, and we've broken it into a million pieces. Right now, it's laying all over the campus. It's on the floor. Because I think career services was built for a World War II model. The guys came home from the war. The GI Bill kicked in. We sent them to college. Okay, now what? So we built a career services to service that kind of student but all that's changed. So out there in career services today, we're, you know, we're doing resumes. The resume today is called LinkedIn. It's not, you know, a little piece of paper necessarily that anybody's going to read. They're going to scan it maybe, but that's not going to get you a job interview. You know, it's got to be something else. So we have merged what what were those, you know, some of those things we still have to do because we have a lot of students that are You know, our first generation, they don't know what this means to go to college. They don't have a a professional experience in their families. That's the population we're here to serve. The Brothers of Christian Instruction, when they created Walsh College at the time, they said, go to the periphery, the edge of society, go where no one else will go and give this educational opportunity to people that otherwise would never have it. So that, I think, has a whole different context for how we approach you know, career services and what we do. So we've, we've taken some of those functions and we've merged it with alumni relations Mm -hmm. and we've created career connections. So we're trying to find ways to activate the student experience so they can activate their degree. And so we're experimenting with things like, Hey, one of the things that, you know, Gallup is telling us is that employers are telling them when they do job interviews, college kids can't talk about how their college experience is related to the job that they're about to do. So one of the things we're thinking about is, well, why not at the end of every lesson, you take the last five minutes of whatever it is and have an alumni beam in on Zoom, since we now know how to Zoom, and let's talk about what you just learned in class and the alumni knows that that's what you learned in class and let them talk about how that might apply to something they're doing out there in the workforce. And help teach our students now as they go through this whole process, how do you relate what you're learning back into a language and in a way that an employer would understand that you understand what you need to do as that future leadership for America when you show up as a fresh out. Most of America, I think, at the college experience, it's very utilitarian. They're only focused in on that job. And that's going to time out after 18 months to three years. They're going to look for something else. Research says our graduates will change jobs 11 times before they actually retire. And we see this with the the moving around. So we need to get them ready for their life and their life's purpose, which feeds back to this distinctive nature of what we're offering at Walsh University. We're thinking about it holistically and
0: preparing them for those three pieces, not just work. Where do you want Walsh to be in five years? 10 years?
2: Well, I I want Walsh to continue to make a difference in providing leaders for the the country, whatever country they're coming from. We have a big international population here. I think size-wise, we're going to be a little bigger, but mostly it's going to be with the adult population, with the online population as we spread around. Residential will always be positive thing here, but I think five or 10 years from now, Walsh, I want us to be nationally recognized. If you want to go someplace where you can really make a difference, not Ivy League, but where you really want to make a difference in your community and your workplace, that's a good place. You're going to learn a lot about yourself. You're going to learn a lot about others. You're going to learn a lot about um, what it takes to lead because we're building leaders in service to others, men and women who can speak up for others who can't speak for themselves, maybe have no voice. And we wanna we want that to matter. That's why it frustrates us where the government thinks it's all about how much the salary is. Well, we're build, we're building people who want to be in social work, they want to be teachers. Those are not hundred thousand dollar jobs. And so they look down their nose at us because you're not they're not producing the salaries. It's not about salaries, it's about having an impact in people's lives. That's what we're building here. And so we want to be recognized as a place that's really faithful to that.
1: Um Interesting, uh, President Collins. You mentioned the 2019 setting of values, and and Brad knows that in our organization we have posters on our values all over on our mouse pad. is is part of our uh, you know ethos as as an organization. And if you stop someone and you say, "What is what is your vision? What is your mission?" They should be able to just blast it off. So I'm with you there. And 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 so when you join in August 2019, right? Um. What did you have to change? There's, this sounds to me, there's a lot of structural, cultural things that have to fall into place to to start moving fast. So, what are some of the steps you started taking?
2: Yeah, so I, I think you know, Walsh, had, you know, been around. we were just you know, fifty nine years, and you know, we've done a very good job of building, you know, a very good foundation. But but nobody knew us. Nobody knows about us. So if you're gonna go from just sort of being known here. Like locally to something beyond that, then you have to raise your profile, which is going to mean you have a different set of expectations and things you need to do. You need to do more things outside than you do inside. So I had to sort of work on thinking about how do I turn people's attention to looking outward instead of just looking inward. Um, you know, faculty presenting, you know, at a regional or national, that just wasn't something that was in our process here. It wasn't how we we thought about it. So I think one of the interesting things about change is, you know, people will, will tell you off the cuff that they resist change, they fight change. And I think the research is fairly clear on this, actually. They they only do that if they don't know what you're trying to get done. And if they understand what you're trying to do, then change is a lot easier because they're trying to, you know, adopt to that. So I spent the first 6 months trying to figure out where our soul was. What is it that Walsh really stands for? What's important to us? How is it that we think? What are the thought processes that we use? And then we started, you know, thinking about, okay, now what do we need to, you know, make some adjustments? And one of the things here honestly was we're very uh, stovepiped. You know, everyone waited for the president to nod their head before they'd go do anything, which does not that's not unique to Walsh. In higher education, it can be a lot like that. And I think one of the strengths in corporate America is where they've been able to break lock on waiting for corporate headquarters to decide, they find a lot of success. And so we've been trying to push things down, trying to flatten the organization, and then COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And when COVID hit, of course, that required us to come together in a different way. Now we do need to have a little more centralized control, but decentralized execution. And we had to make decisions fast because the situation was changing all the time. And when that March event happened in March, it really happened here for us. We were kind of leading edge at the time because we had students that were in Rome. Mm. And I'd been following the data. I came from Hopkins. So I have a lot of friends at Hopkins. And so in January, you know, we watched what was happening um, around the world. And I went off on travel at the end of the month. We had just sent our students to Rome and we had a big conversation in the cabinet and said, look, if the government, because of COVID, even says anything about restricting travel in Italy, just bring the students home. No questions, just do it because this is not going to end well. And so on a Friday morning, you know, the State Department says travel advisories to Italy. I'm in Florida. They call. What do you want us to do? I said, we already decided what to do. Mm. Are you serious? You want us to bring them home? Absolutely. Okay. So we pull the trigger. We bring them home Monday. I meet them in the middle of the night. A third of the parents there, they won't even talk to me. They are mad, mad, mad for every day that week, two parents a day pounding on my dad. How could you deny my child this opportunity? What are you doing? We're going you know all this kind of stuff. And I said, look, my responsibility is the safety of the students. We've entered an unknown situation here. I just with my judgment determined that our best bet for our student safety was just to come home. So Sorry. Of course, now we see where that ended. Not a single parent ever came back and said, eh, maybe the university got that one right. Um, but all of that, even in the midst of sending them home, I realized immediately when we sent them out of the dorms, we've got to come back face to face. This idea of sending us all to the corners is not a good idea. It's just not a good idea. The Air Force Academy, they brought everybody back. Only the seniors, they sent everybody else home at spring break. And they put them all in single person rooms. Two weeks later and two suicides later, they said, this isn't working. We got to put them back together. And Mm -hmm. so we fought like crazy to make sure we could have full residential in August of 2020. And we did. We had protocols, but we were focused on trying to teach them how to think, what to think. So we never went down this path of just tell them what to do and that's what they're going to do. No, set the conditions situational dependent, let them struggle with figuring out what to do. If you're walking across campus at midnight by yourself from the library to your dorm, why do you need a mask? If you're standing out in the academic quad and you're talking to a 70 year old, why don't you have a mask on? I mean, it was that kind of a thing. So we tried to we tried to manage change. By insisting, you know, in that moment of that crisis, it really wasn't a crisis. I I was in command on the end of a truck bomb, so I can talk to you what a crisis is. COVID was never a crisis, but COVID was, you know, a sense of urgency for what we had to do. But how do we do that where we give good policy guidance in an even-handed way, and then let people do their jobs with those constraints? And where we have issues and they pop up because we don't agree, let's sort that out. So that's what we did.
1: But it was fascinating that you mentioned that you have data science introduced in every program. is that also for philosophy and English and humanities and 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 how did that how did that discussion go
2: well, you know it went you know <laughs> like you would think it would go when we first started talking about that but you know the reality is is that well, this is, this is what I think is happening. I think kids go to high school and they show up and they say, okay, tell me what I need to know. Mm-hmm. And in high school, we teach them what they need to know. And they come to college and they think that that's the same approach. But the three of us know that's not the same approach because what, actually what we're here to do is we're here to teach them how the world works. We're here to teach them about the complexities of the real world through the lens of these liberal arts, we call them the liberal arts, all these different topics. And so as we think about data analytics and data science, those decisions cannot be made divorced from values and philosophical understandings in approaches. And so it's actually a great place to tuck in a topic, you know, in your course about how do you apply ethics to what the data is telling you? Mm-hmm. And so we have found a way to think about that in all of our courses across the whole gen ed. You know, we what I tell what I tell parents, honestly, is if you come to Walsh University, all of our students get two degrees, all of them. They're all dual majors. Some might be three or four majors. They're going to get one degree in a program they pick. They're going to get one degree in a program that we have picked for them. One of these is called their major, and they're thinking about their career. One of these is called Gen Ed, and we're thinking about their career, their life, and their life's purpose. And we're going to wrap both those together. So as they walk out the door, they're prepared for that first contact, that first exposure in their career. But they're also prepared for their life and their life's purpose. And as life takes them wherever they're going to go, as leaders in their workplace, as leaders in their community, as leaders in their family, we think that in these final years of formation, we're doing a good job preparing for that. Or if they're mid-career and they're returning back to us for additional education, because we want a 40 to 60 year relationship in our education for life, not just that four to six year relationship, we wanna be able to bring back to the table why this is important. I mean, if all three of us, if we go back and look at why Enron collapsed and all the disaster it spewed across the landscape of America, it fundamentally was because there was no longer a discussion on business ethics everything was about money and whatever we can do to make money and spread money around and that's why the business schools all across america reacted by bringing back ethics into the conversation and so this is where i think we're headed with data science and data analytics we're really and we get to big data employers are they're getting it and if they don't yet they will that we have this information available. How do we use it to make our business more efficient and more effective, and which turns back and spins off into more more opportunity for more jobs and better communities? Everybody's gonna need to do that. And so we need to make sure that our students at least have some conversational knowledge on how to and where to go, what I say, how to think about this. And not just somebody says as a nurse, because you know, nurses that they're taking their stubby pencil and they're trying to figure out, you know, they need to know what the data is telling them also so they can advise their medical team and their doctors and their physicians who are going crazy about trying to understand the data to bring it back into patient health and welfare. So it, it applies everywhere, sir. Philosophy, theology, it's, it's there for all of us. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I always tell our HR when they hire, we, we focus on values and commitment because competence could always be thought, right? So, so you start right. on value. What is their integrity? What is their resiliency? What is their, their level of dependency? And, and are they, can they, do they have the value of enjoying to work? You know, the, just being enthralled with working and, and continuous improvement. So if I were to come to you as an employer, or, or not just me, anyone, right? I, w- I would say, okay, we need people in these areas, right? Whether it's de- development, whether it's product, whether it's sales. How do you propose to work with employers that, that would definitely serve the employer market as your client?
2: Well, I think employers, you know, Gallup did a poll uh, two years ago, and they said, hey, employers, would you, which employee would you want? Uh, someone who has a degree in computer science mm-hmm. or someone who has an English degree with a certificate in cybersecurity. And 98% said, I'll take that one with a certificate.
1: Mm-hmm. So they
2: recognize the value in people that can think independently, that can communicate, that can develop options. And so when we talk to employers about the value added of someone with this experience, we talk about what the value will be to that company in the long haul. Not in that first job necessarily, because the truth is, I think most employers, they want to know they got somebody who's trainable and you can train them on what they need to do for that job, for that company for today. But they have to be grounded in ethical practices and approaches, knowing when to say, I can't get this done knowing when to say that's not really how we should do this, we shouldn't cheat, we shouldn't, cheat. We shouldn't, you know, cut a corner. Or if I'm going to cut a corner, I should talk to my boss about that to see if there's risk that's associated with that corner that I'm choosing to cut because they're not the owners of risk management, their boss is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I think is really interesting, uh, sort of a corollary or orthogonal to that question is, you know, the the reporting is showing that the students that are coming to my to my college, to colleges around the country today, 80 percent of them have never held a job outside the home. It's the least worked generation in American history. Hmm. If that's true, then what that tells me analytically is that those people that are influencing them have decided that there's not a learning value to work. In other words, work is about optimizing for money. And so they're not making them go into the workplace to, you know, they'd learn basic skills like be on time, you know, do what you're told, you know, uh, be respectful, that kind of stuff. But it's, it's also they're sort of telling the students, you know, well, we have a higher priority, you know we'll take care of that. you need gas money. I'll give you money for that because there's no job right now that can satisfy that because I need you to work on you know making sure your grades are good for college. So we actually have a real disconnect with the students that are coming here if because if that's true, then they don't know what that value is of the work experience as it's spun back around and applied to their life because look at the things that you teach them as an employer that they actually apply back to making a decision about where to buy a car, how to buy a house, what neighborhood to live in, what do they do with my extra time in terms of community service and giving back. So these are all interconnected. And that's why I think the liberal arts experience is so important in preparing them. And here, you know, we're about leaders and service to others. Service, this component of service, it can't be divorced from whatever the activity is that the employer needs them to do.
1: President Collins, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Thank you, sir.
0: Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions.
2: Thank you.